Good morning, Christ Prez. We're making our way through the book of Revelation, and uh, there's really just one reason we're doing this, to know Christ better. Remember, this is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. This is an unveiling of Jesus. Jesus isn't just the source of the revelation. He's the content of the revelation. He's giving us himself. John Stott writes this, quote, Revelation is above all else an unveiling of the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. For this is what a beleaguered church needs more than anything else. Not a series of prophecies about the past or the future, nor even a coded panorama of church history, but a disclosure of the incomparable Christ, once crucified, now resurrected and reigning, and one day returning in power and great glory. Quote, close quote. So we're reading this to see Jesus and to know Jesus better, and I trust that that's been happening. No other book represents Jesus as clearly, as powerfully, even as realistically as he is right now, as does this last book of the Bible. And in the face of all we're going through, this is what we most need, a clearer, bigger picture of Jesus Christ. And so this book won't necessarily change our circumstances, but if we'll let it, it will change our perspective on our circumstances so that we can patiently endure as we follow the Lamb. Last week, we looked at the vision of the seven seals, and we saw the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse galloping across the earth. They're a symbol of the destructive power of human sin and evil as God allows evil to run its course. But we skip chapter seven. It's sandwiched right between the sixth and the seventh seals. It's like the momentum is building. One seal is being broken right after another. But then just when we're ready for the last seal of the scroll to be opened, we pause and we get this interlude. The first six seals have been heavy. They powerfully remind us of the grim realities of life on earth, which we're, with which we're all too familiar. Corruption, violence, economic injustice and exploitation, famine and death. Remember, it's these dark realities that the wrath of the Lamb, precisely because it is none other than the very love of God, must oppose. And John ended with the question, who can stand? But now we pause and we get an answer to that question. John slows down. He puts his hand on our shoulder. He says, okay, take a deep breath. Let's talk about how we're going to make it through all of this together. John the pastor is saying to us, we're about to go through an ordeal. I know it's a lot. I know it's scary, but we're going to make it through. We're, we're going to be okay. All will be well. That's what's happening in Revelation 7. We're watching the same scene from a different angle hearing the same story that we heard in chapter 6, but now from a different perspective. And so now, instead of four horsemen, we get four winds, but it's the same reality. These are the same destructive forces that the writer symbolized. God is allowing the repercussions of human sin and supernatural evil to take their course. Injustice, pain, war, violence, terror, and death will make their way through every human community and society in every age of history, bringing great harm to humanity and to the earth. And the only fitting word for this is tribulation. And you see, it's already underway. In chapter one, remember, John told the church that he was their partner in the tribulation. In our chapter, he refers again to the great tribulation. The four horsemen, that's the tribulation. The four winds, that's the tribulation. 
This isn't some future reality that John is waiting for. For him, the tribulation has been underway ever since the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The tribulation has a reality, uh, was a reality for John and the early church, and it's still a reality for us today. Remember, Jesus told us this. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Same word. It is war and violence. It is hunger and famine. It is political corruption and economic injustice. It is abandoned children and physical abuse and human trafficking. It is earthquakes and hurricanes and fires, devastating natural disasters. It is poverty and racism and terrorism. It is divorce and environmental degradation. It is mental illness and destructive diseases and global pandemics. See, we know the tribulation. This is our experience. Our world is troubled and our lives are troubled. The tribulation is underway. It's all the terrors and trials of the human experience on this earth as God allows human sin and supernatural evil to run their course, ultimately resulting in divine judgment. And the question now is, how are you going to make it? How are you going to get through? Who can stand? Chapter 7 answers the question. The opening of the seals pauses. We get this interlude. John wants to fill us with hope. He's saying there is a way to stand. There is a way to make it through. How? Here's how. John is saying if you want to stand, if you want to make it through, you need to see who you are and you need to see whose you are. That's it. Chapter 7 reminds us who we are and it reminds us whose we are. And this is enough. So first, this vision shows us who we are. We get a vision of what first seems to be two different groups of people. And there's been debate about how best to make sense of this. Who are these two groups? Are they the same? Are they different? Well, let's look at this. The first group is described in verses 4 through 8. It's 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now remember, numbers in Revelation, at least with the approach I'm taking, are symbolic and representative. We're not supposed to imagine 144,000 individuals from the 12 tri tribes of Israel. We're supposed to wonder about the significance of that number. And it turns out it's not too difficult to, to figure out the significance here. 144 is 12 times 12. 12 is clearly an important number. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There were also 12 apostles, indicating that Jesus was forming around himself the true people of God. 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. And the point is simply that this is a complete, very big number. It's all the people of God times 1,000. Remember when Jesus was once asked about how often we should forgive? Seven times? Jesus says, no, try 70 times seven times. And the point wasn't to tally it up and stop forgiving after the 490th time. The point was, don't count. Just keep on forgiving. It's the same kind of point being made here. This is a full, complete group. If you multiplied 12 times 12 times 10, that would be big. If you multiplied 12 times 12 times 10 times 10, that would be really big. But this is 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. That's really, really big. It's kind of like God not just being holy, and not just being holy, holy, but being holy, holy, holy. He's holiness cubed. The point here is, 
don't tally up the people, just be amazed by how full and large this group is. This is the complete people of God. So that's the first group. Now what about the second group in verses 9 through 17? At first glance, it might seem to be a different group of people. The first group was counted, even if symbolically. The second group, we're told, is a great multitude that no one can count. The first group is made up of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It seems very Jewish. The second group is from every nation, tribe, people, and language. How do we make sense of this? Is this a different group? I don't think so. Remember what happened in John's vision back in chapter 5? He heard the voice of one of the elders say, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looked, and what did he see? A slain lamb. The point, remember, was not that the lion wasn't there at all. The point was that the lion wasn't at all what John expected the lion to be. The lion was really a lamb. I think the exact same thing is happening here. In verse 4, John hears the number of the sealed, 144,000. But then in verse 9, he looks and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. He's not seeing a different group than the one he heard about. He's seeing the true nature of the group he heard about. It's a picture of the same community, but from a different perspective. Remember, one of the big turning points in the Bible happens in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham and he promises that he will make Abraham a great nation. And so we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, remember, becomes Israel, and he fathers 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. So the first part of John's vision is recalling this story. But remember, God's promise to Abraham wasn't only to bless him and to make him a great nation. The whole point of blessing Abraham was for the sake of the world. Through Abraham and his family, every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages would be blessed. And so in the second part of John's vision, we're getting this fuller picture of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. This international multi-ethnic community is wearing white robes, a sign of purity and victory, and waving palm branches, yet another sign of victory. And they cried out in worship to the God and to the Lamb on the throne. So the first affirmation we see declared here is that for anyone and everyone who trusts in the Lamb, they become part of this community. They are part of this community. The vision shows us our true identity as the beloved people of God in continuity with Old Testament Israel, fulfilled in Jesus, drawn from all nations, multi-ethnic, multinational, including every tribe and culture on the earth. This is our truest identity. We have been incorporated by Jesus into this new society of the people of God. What difference ought this to make for how we live as God's people here and now? Well, let me just make a couple of comments about how I think this might apply to some of the big challenges we face today. First, when it comes to diversity in the church. You know, one of the terrible legacies of racism is segregation in the church that has separated us from brothers and sisters of different races and cultures. Revelation 7 is a huge biblical challenge to the segregated American church. What we see as God's vision is a multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural community worshiping Jesus. And part of the calling of the church on earth is to bear witness to the power of Jesus to create this kind of human community, which means 
we have some work to do in tearing down barriers that create obstacles for people who don't share our race or culture to be part of our church. This is hard work. It's work that I honestly don't really know how to do very well, but I think it's needed work, especially in a city as culturally and ethnically and racially diverse as ours is. How can Christ's prayers more and more reflect the diversity of the true people of God? What about some implications for our present political moment? You might have heard that there's an election on Tuesday. Brothers and sisters, will you remember that your true allegiance is not to a political party, not to a political movement, not even to a country, but to Jesus Christ himself? And when you go to Jesus, you find yourself with a community of people who don't look like you and act like you and think like you, but who do share a central love for and commitment to following the Lamb. That's it. And that commonality is infinitely more important than any political position you might hold. Let me say that again. The commonality of Jesus within the church is infinitely more important than any political position you might hold. Our primary citizenship is not American. It's heavenly. Our faith is not national, it's global. Our true ruler is not a president, but the king of kings and lord of lords. Politics is not ultimate. See, we're free to engage in the political process as an act of love for our neighbors, but we do so as exiles, as foreigners who are citizens of another country and whose ultimate allegiance lies elsewhere. There has been plenty of political unrest and polarization leading up to this election, and I'd be surprised if it just disappeared on Wednesday. But do you see what an opportunity this is for us as a congregation to bear witness to the power of the gospel, the diversity of our congregation, and especially right now, the political diversity of our congregation is such a gift. It gives us an opportunity to show, <clears throat> excuse me, to show a watching world what happens when allegiance to Jesus transcends the political divides of the current moment? As followers of the Lamb, we're called to be different. We do not reduce people to their political views. We don't dismiss people when we disagree with their ideas. We don't follow the trend of making everything political. We see one another as brothers and sisters, fellow citizens of the new community Jesus is creating around himself. You see, this is who we are in the tribulation, not primarily Richmonders or Virginians or Americans, not Republicans or Democrats or Independents or Libertarians. These just aren't the categories that define us. We're Jesus people. We're land people. This is All Saints Day, and it's an opportunity for us to remember and to celebrate that we're part of an international, multi-ethnic, multicultural community stretching through time that finds its identity and its only hope and comfort in Jesus Christ. This communion of saints was around long before America entered the scene, and it will be around long after America makes its exit. In the Great Tribulation, the Tribulation Today, on Tuesday, and in the days that follow, remember who you are, family. But more, remember whose you are. 
This is the other reminder our passage gives. John is showing us that if we want to stand in the tribulation, we need to see whose we are. And this can be a short point because the answer is so clear. We belong to God. The main way the text shows us this is with this language about being sealed. It's a wonderful little play on words. The seals of the scroll are being broken, and then right here between the breaking of the sixth and seventh seals, God's people are sealed. Who can stand? Who can make it through the breaking of the seals? Those who are sealed. In ancient times, a seal was a sign of possession. A king would often wear a giant ring and use it to mark his property. A seal was a sign of ownership. Sometimes servants were even sealed on their foreheads. This was this way everyone knew who owned them and who they were working for. It's not a coincidence that verse 3 refers to those who are sealed as servants of God. We who belong to Jesus have been sealed. But it's an image that subverts its connection with servitude, with slavery. We belong to God because he has freed us from slavery. In chapter 5, the lamb was worshipped with the song that said, You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from, for God from every time, tribe, and language, and people and nation. To use Paul's language, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. To use the language of the Heidelberg Catechism, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Later in Revelation 14, we learn that those who are sealed are sealed um, with the Father's name written on their foreheads. Now remember, this is symbolic imagery. We shouldn't expect to see actual marks on people's foreheads. We shouldn't get worried if we love Jesus and haven't found any name appearing on our own foreheads. The point of the image is simply that we are his, that we belong to him. Now, there is a literal seal that the New Testament talks about, and, and the New Testament also clarifies what it is. Just listen. In Ephesians chapter 1, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4, we read, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read, He has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What is the seal? You see, the seal of the living God is the Holy Spirit of God. God marks us as his own by giving us his spirit. And so it is a sign that we belong to the one in whose service there is true freedom. Whose are you? Well, whose mark do you bear? What seal is on your life? You who follow Jesus have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Does this sealing make you safe during the tribulation? Absolutely not. Not in the least. There's nothing safe about belonging to Jesus. There's nothing safe about being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. There's nothing safe about following the slain lamb. But by belonging to Jesus, we get something so much better than safety. Security. You belong to Jesus Christ. Nothing and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Nothing and no one can separate you from his love. He's given his life so that he can have you. And so as you face the tribulation, family, 
today, tomorrow, Tuesday, remember whose you are. Remember that beneath and behind it all, you are beloved. And whenever you doubt it, look at the table that we're about to gather around. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be your shepherd. You shall hunger no more, neither shall you thirst any more. He will guide you to springs of living water and wipe away every tear from your eyes. You see, this isn't the kind of Lord who owns you like a slave. This is a tender shepherd who loves you to the point of laying down his life. He loves you to the point of his body breaking and his blood being shed for you. He does this to set you free from slavery, from slavery to yourself, to your sin, to the powers of death and the devil. He is the one who promises to hold you through the tribulation and then to hold you through your death and to hold you into the new creation. Even though you're in tribulation now, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil. The Lord is with you. He cares for you. He prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies, who maybe today or tomorrow will be your brothers and sisters in Christ. The riders ride and the winds blow, but the Lord anoints your head with oil. Your cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.